Welcome to the Goals Podcast, the business case for women's sports, where we explore every corner of the women's sports industry from the field to the front office. I'm Caroline Fitzgerald, and I'm here to prove that it's good business to be in the business of women's sports. Today's episode is brought to you by Ally, a change maker in women's sports steadfast in their commitment to the fight for media equity, because we're all better off with an ally. Our guest today is Gina Waldhorn, the Chief Marketing Officer at Sports Innovation Lab. Welcome to the show, Gina. Thank you for having me. Big fan. Gina, it's so special to have you on the show. And just for our listeners, I'm a huge fan of Gina because Gina had gotten in touch with me with the team from Sports Innovation Lab very early in the life cycle of goals um, and just took such an interest in what we were doing here on the podcast and in general and really kind of welcomed us into the women's sports industry fold um, when they were doing a lot of work that we're going to get into later. So anyway, Gina, I just need to start by saying thank you for believing in me and believing in goals in this podcast from moment number one. And it's just such a full circle moment to have you on the show now. Thank you. Well, listen, when we decided to first you know, approach women's sports space through a business angle, there really wasn't anyone else out there, not just talking about the heart, you know, not, not focused on the business and the mind and let's make a true business case. And you were, and so we were really thrilled when we came across you and what you were doing. Um, so the feeling is mutual. Well, I'm so grateful for everything that your team has done over the last few years, you've really changed the game. I know we're getting into all of that today, but before we dig into all of the data and the reports and the insights and the business case for women's sports that your team is making, I'd love to start by hearing more about your background, your career journey, and everything that you've done that's led you to becoming the CMO at Sports Innovation Lab. Sure. So I took a very non-traditional path into sports. Uh, I started my career in the agency world at media and creative agencies, Cara, Group M. And I really focused on communications planning and digital strategy for big brands. Mainly spent a lot of time working with Procter & Gamble on some of their baby care and home care brands. Um, And that's where I really focused on, you know, deriving insights and business planning around achieving marketing goals. At the same time, probably 2010, 11, Um, I've always been a serial ideator. I've always come up with kind of weird business ideas. And so I started getting very involved in the New York startup scene around 2009, 2010, um, while I was working at the agency. And I started to find a lot of startups who were doing really interesting things in the same category as my clients. And so I actually came, went to the agency and said, hey, you know, instead of buying these Wall Street Journal ads, which at the time were $250,000 for a full page ad, I said, what if you, we asked the client at the time, this was, um, I was working on the UPS business. And I said, you know, I'm seeing these really cool small business startups. What if we didn't buy one page in the Wall Street Journal journal, and we bought instead an investment into one of these small business startups? And that would be a more direct channel for a logistics company to speak to their target market. And they said, well, um, that's really nice, but we make our money when they buy Wall Street Journal ads. So no more of that. And I said, well, screw it. And I literally kind of left a week later after I met my co-founder at a coffee shop and he had a similar vision and we started a company that did just that. So following my time at the agency, 
I started a company called Evolution, where the whole focus was to connect the worlds of big brands with early stage tech startups for pre-Series A investment or partnerships in market. That was a wonderful, wild startup experience. I ran that business for about seven years. I got to work with brands from you know, uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev to P&G and Dr. Snapple, uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple Group and Dell and Purina and help them find entrepreneurs and emerging technologies that could accelerate their own paths to growth, whether that was through, you know, consumer marketing or D2C. Um, And that was really awesome and fascinating, but it was very high speed and it was very stressful. And after I had my first child, I decided to take some time off and I sold my half of that business to my co-founder. And I was trying to take a little time off, but I was recruited by then a private equity firm um, who had purchased a startup called Quirky. So if you live in New York, you, you might've heard of Quirky before, which was an invention community. And this private equity firm had purchased Quirky off of auction after the company went through a very public bankruptcy. And they recruited me to become president of that company. And the reason they did, Quirky was an invention community. And they were sitting on a, you know, a library of IP for consumer durables and products. And having seen what I built with my company at Evolution, which was all about, let's take big brands with no money and connect them with, you know, entrepreneurs with ideas, but no money. Um, And they had something similar. They were sitting on a bunch of amazing ideas for products, but no way to bring them to market and wanted me to do what I had done with that business and connect them with big manufacturers and brands. So after 24 months, we pivoted the company into a licensing model out of a manufacturing model. I mean, and this is totally weird. Like I never worked in licensing. I never worked in consumer durables, but that idea of making a connection between kind of big laggard industry and small nimble IP holder, inventor, entrepreneur was something I was really good at. So I helped pivot that company into a profitable business model. I had my second kid and I said, that's it. This time, I've definitely taken like a year or two off, just going to do the mom thing. I made it seven months. I was bored. I saw the co-founder of Sports Innovation Lab, Josh Walker, who is an old associate Um, we, you know, were introduced together other years before through a mutual contact. Uh, I just saw him posting fascinating things about this industry that was a laggard, you know, kind of legacy industry and how to accelerate it. And I thought what they, the content that Sports Innovation Lab was publishing was really fascinating, knowing nothing about really the business of sports. And so I kind of pinged him on LinkedIn and said, Hey, long time, love what you're posting. And he's like, call me. And so I I called him and it, as it just so happened, very serendipitously, Angela Ruggiero, the CEO was about to leave in a few weeks on maternity leave. And I was coming off mine or, you know, my time off, I was too bored. Uh, So he, you know, he said, hey, come, you know, help us uh, keep the ship afloat while we lose our captain for a few months. And that was almost four years ago and I never left. And so I've you know, been really learning over the past three and a half years, the sports industry and how to apply those marketing and those innovation skills that I've built over the past 15, 20 years of my career into this industry. What an incredible journey. And it definitely feels like all of those skills, all of that experience has led to like position you very perfectly to do incredible work in this space, especially in the women's sports space. As I know you guys talk about all the time at Sports Innovation Lab, the men's sports industry is not the same as the women's sports industry. 
Right. So. Not well. And I mean, you can, you know, we also oftentimes refer to the women's sports industry as kind of the startup. I mean, it's in some cases, when you look at, you know, the LPGA or some of the tennis associations, you know, it's 50, hundred year old startups, but it's still a startup in the way that sometimes it's organized and it functions and it has that nimbleness, which is a benefit and an advantage um, versus some of the legacy traditional and men's leagues and teams and, and industries, which don't have that. So they, they kind of are functioning still in many cases as a startup. So in that sense, a lot of my experience is very useful, but there are certainly times where I will still be on calls and have to, you know, back channel someone on the team and say, you know, who's paying who in this relationship? And I go, oh, well, it's kind of complicated. It's, you know, the brand is paying for the right to be paying for the sponsor. And I'm still learning every day. I, I find the whole industry very fascinating. So what is Sports Innovation Lab and what do you guys do on a daily basis? Sure. So we're a fan intelligence company that helps sports organizations, whether it's brands who are sponsors, leagues, teams, technology companies, we help them figure out who their fans are so they can understand who their most valuable fans are so they can go out and get more of them. It's pretty much as simple as that. And the way we're able to, and the reason we exist is essentially because, you know, if you want to know who your fan is, you need data. And the data to understand who your fan is, is all over the place because this industry is so legacy and kind of frankly old school. You've ended up in a position where if you want to know who watched your game, you got to go to Nielsen. And if you want to know who came to a game, you got to go to Ticketmaster. And if you want to know who bought the beer at the game, you got to go to Aramark or your venue. And if you want to know who's buying the merch, you got to ask Fanatics. And, you know, you end up with a completely fragmented data distribution of who your consumer is. And so these teams and these leagues and these brands are left with, at best, their CRM system. And then you can pay for a very costly and long, you know, that takes a long time program to start to append data to that CRM and try to connect those disparate sources. And that's great. And people should undertake those types of data infrastructures, but it costs a lot of money. It takes a long time. And it's still very incomplete because for a lot of teams, 90% of those, you know, fans will never be in their CRM system. So sports innovation lab exists. And on day one, without touching any of your data, I can tell you who your fan is, what teams they like, what leagues they like, what sports they like, where they buy their merch. Um, I can tell you everything about who they are as a fan and as a person um, so that you can create better personas and segmentations and you can actually go to market and sell more tickets and sell more jerseys and create better fan experiences. It's incredible. You've really looked at the customer of sports in a way that nobody ever has before. You using that word customer, when I came to Sports Innovation Lab and started speaking with clients, I was using words like that. I was saying your consumer and I was saying, how, do, how are you driving trial and what are your acquisition rates look like? And I got a lot of looks like, who is this nut job? Because the sports industry, don't they don't even use words like that. They don't think about their product, the game, the fan base in that way. And so... I've been lucky that, you know, where I still have to continually educate myself, I think the market has responded very well to starting to think more like these very savvy brands who use 
language like that and start to think about their business in that way so that they can drive trial of new younger fans, retain existing fans, you know, think about acquisition strategies in ways that other verticals do that the sports industry has just kind of rested on their laurels and been like, well, those diehards will come back eventually. And then they're in bad positions. Absolutely. Well, Gina, in 2021, well, what year did you join Sports Innovation Lab? 2020. 2020. Okay. Uh, so 20 actually, a little earlier, two the end of 2019, because I remember I was just getting on board and visiting people and then the world shut down. So yeah, it was a little, a little right before the pandemic. <laughs> well, you and the team at Sports Innovation Lab have been working to really change the way the entire world values the sports industry and specifically women's sports. So in 2021, you guys put out a body of work called The Fan Project that really, really changed how people think about women's sports from a business perspective. The Fan Project used 10 million data points to paint a picture of women's sports fan behavior like never before. You rallied the entire women's sports industry to collect this data goals, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, was included in that. And the takeaways from the report have been used since they came out. I swear, everybody across the industry uses this data, uses these insights to inform how they do business, how they sell sponsorships, everything. So I know this research of the fan project has evolved over the years. When it first came out, Angela came on the podcast a few times to break it down for us. But how is your team working on this now? How is your team working either using the fan project or using new, new work that you're doing to make the business case for women's sports? Absolutely. So the fan project really was foundational. There hadn't really been research published like it before. And as you said, it got people to pay attention to the business by one saying, look, women's sports has some of the most valuable fans out there because they're fluid fans. So that's IP that Sports Innovation Lab created. Again, very data-driven that said the future fan, the path to growth is this fluid fan. They're continuously evolving. They're open to change and they're empowered to choose because of all the different sports, media, and entertainment options out there. And if you can figure out who these fluid fans are and how to bring them into your ecosystem, you've got growth in front of you and you've got a real scalable business. And it's really the path to growth for, for many of these traditional sports leagues. So with that kind of background, we set out and when we launched the fan project, we looked at all those data points that you mentioned, and we discovered that women's sports fans were the most fluid fans. They were exhibiting fluid fan behaviors of tech savviness, of community, of kind of on demand for on average four years before the masses and before the traditional sports fan. And so the anchor of that first project was one, women's sports has the most fluid fans of all, and that's worth something. Pay attention to this space. And two, you need a business model that actually connects with this fluid fan, and that's the community-based monetization model. So that kind of foundational report was, I think, key in getting people to lean into this concept of fluid fandom and women's sports having that early adopter, high-value fluid fan audience. Since then, and really where we've evolved as a company, is in our data. So that data was mainly based on social media data. Moving forward, we've actually started to license purchasing data. 
So today, Sports Innovation Lab can see the purchasing habits of over 20 million U.S. consumers. It's investment grade data. It's the same stuff that hedge funds use to you know, hedge the market. We're just looking at it through a completely different lens. So we ingest all this data and I can tell you everything about what 20 million U.S. consumers buy from where they pump their gas. I know where they buy their groceries. I know if they're eating at Chick-fil-A or they're, you know, drinking athletic greens. I can tell you if they're buying from Ticketmaster, if they're buying on StubHub, I can see every purchase they make that would show up on their credit or debit card. What we do and really our kind of special sauce is we built tools and data science on top of that ingested data that allows us to view all that data through the lens of sports fandom and consumer behavior. So that's how immediately on day one, I can tell a, a team or a league or a sponsor who their fan is, what they buy. Are they tennis fans? Are they golf fans? Are they MMA fans? Are they buying jerseys? Are they subscribing to league pass? Are they placing bets with how much and with who and how often? I can see all of that pretty instantaneously. So we've used that data now to evolve our women's sports research. So if the first case was, guys, pay attention. They're fluid fans and they're valuable. Our second report that we launched last year was really focused on, well, what do you mean by value? How much are they spending? How much more do they spend than fan traditional sports fans? In what categories? Is that trending up or is that trending down? And so we've really started to gear the report towards one, sponsors so they can see that these women's sports fans are spending on these specific categories and exponentially more so than other fans. And then on the property side, we want to help them make the business case. We want them to use this data in their collateral when they go out to new categories and brands and show through data and spending data that the power of the women's sports fans when it comes to purchasing power is exponential. So that's really been the evolution of the fan project and our women's sports research to tell that value-based story anchored in real purchasing data. There is a ton of economic value in investing in women's sports and women's sports fans demonstrate great affinity towards the brands that invest in women's sports. And I know that's a space that you guys have done a lot of work to show that connection that brands who invest in women's sports will be rewarded with purchases from fans who are fans of those teams, leagues, or athletes that these brands support. Absolutely. So, and we even looked at, you know, we looked at uh, what happened to CarMax when they sponsored the WNBA or YouTube TV. And compared to the general population, we saw, you know, an index of three, four, 500 year over year as those sponsorship continued. You just saw a massive spike by WNBA fans rewarding those brands through their wallets. The other thing we looked at was we took a set of brands um, who had spent dollars in both traditional sports and men's sports. So Nike and DoorDash and State Farm, who were some of the early brands to show up for women's sports and invest, but also had you know investments in traditional sports. And we were able to measure the rate of purchase, how frequently fans were purchasing those brands and compared the general sports fans and the women's sports fans. And on average, the women's sports had a purchase rate of over 30, 30% higher than the traditional sports fans. So they just bought more of the products 
from the brands who sponsored the women's sports than the traditional sports fans. Because again, I think there was an emotional connection and just a level of loyalty and thankfulness for these brands to bring these women's sports fans the sports they love when other brands weren't showing up. Absolutely. I could geek out about that part of the data all day long, but I want to talk about something that your team announced recently. So you guys created the Women's Sports Club in partnership with Ally, which will assemble a cohort of businesses to buy and sell sports media and sponsorships with a shared goal to elevate investments in women's sports. This is so exciting. So this is a huge deal for women's sports because it brings together two absolute powerhouse brands that have a demonstrated history in investing in and championing women's sports. Obviously, your team leading the way when it comes to the data, the reports, showing the business value and opportunities around women's sports. An ally who's been a tremendous brand leader in women's sports now, since they announced in May of 2022, a five-year initiative called the 50-50 Pledge, which they're vowing to reach parity across their paid media spending in men's and women's sports, which is unprecedented. They really are changing the game when it comes to investing in women's sports. So can you, Gina, talk more about the Women's Sports Club and what you hope to achieve with Ally with this program? Absolutely. Yeah, they're incredible. Andrea Brimmer, the chief marketing and PR officer, uh, down to her team are just living and breathing it and putting literally their money where their mouth is and absolutely transforming the entire industry with this parity commitment to spend dollar for dollar. So we launched the Women's Sports Club and a lot of people, we had a, we had a virtual call the other day and I said this and I got a bunch of like slacks and texts right after. And they were like, yeah, we want shirts with this on it. I said to, we had over 90 uh, members attend this call. And I said, you guys, this is our cigar bar. This is our golf course. Like this is where deals get done. You know what the industry doesn't need? Another cheerleading the cheerleaders. Like that's great. I love when we go to different, you know, events and things and we have cocktails and we hug each other and we tell how much we love women's sports and we high five. That's awesome, but we need to do deals. And what the men's industry and men do a lot better historically than women is be very transparent with the deals they need to get done. So you will see two men on a golf course saying, listen, for me to get my promotion, for me to hit my goal this year, I'm 15 million short. What do you got in your budget? What can you give me? You know anyone who could? Who can we call? How do we get this deal done? And you just don't hear enough of those conversations between women and on the women's sports side of things. So really this club with allies stewardship came together to be, have a very focused goal of moving more media dollars and sponsorship dollars into women's sports. And so for Ally, this is really gonna help them accelerate their own commitment so they can find more opportunities to spend the dollars that they have now committed, um, along with some other amazing brands who have announced you know, their commitments like Michelob Ultra. And you know we've seen a lot of brands lean in, which is great, but there's not enough inventory um, and even if there is inventory kind of spread out, it's not packaged in a way that makes it easy for the brands and their agencies to buy. And I know this because I sat at an agency. I was a media buyer. And there are just realities to media buying that I think the industry has wanted to kind of skirt, which is there are levels that media agencies need to try to hit, right? They have these accounts because they've signed contracts to get them the best 
CPMs and the lowest rates. And we're going to make sure that you get enough rating points. And when you're not allowed or, or networks aren't putting together packages where they can reach those media goals, it becomes really difficult for the agency to recommend the buy to their client. And so you end up with this broken ecosystem. Another challenge that is part of that is when women's sports is on. It's almost impossible to find. They're still getting the shaft when it comes to time slots and not enough tune-in inventory and they get bumped and, oh, this game ran long. So you're going to get in the first quarter of a game and there's no shoulder content and it's on at 2 a.m. And how are they supposed to sell inventory that way? And so the focus of the club is bring together the key stakeholders in the ecosystem. We got the buy side. So we have unbelievable brands from Nike and Google and Coca-Cola and Delta and Puma and New Balance and State Farm and Nationwide. And, uh, you know, the list goes on. And then we've got the sell. So we've got the properties and we've got the media. And then we have some amazing ecosystem partners from together to impact partners um, who are, you know, content creators or help to create those distribution channels like the Women's Sports Network to Just Women's Sports and the GIST and goals like channels where there's inventory to distribute. And if we can bring this ecosystem together, if we can help them have those golf course, cigar bar, transparent conversations of what would have to be true for you to get this deal done, then we believe we can really start to see media dollars get committed and spent in a way we have not in the past you know, decade. It's incredible having real conversations about moving real money into women's sports. We need it. You're filling a white space that's essential to growing women's sports. As you may know, the goal of this podcast is to show brands, networks, and people in general that it's good business to invest in women's sports. We know that women in sports are incredible and are breaking boundaries and setting records. But did you know they still receive less than 10% of all sports media coverage? It's a vicious cycle. The lack of media coverage means fans miss out, while networks and sponsors can't see the fan base and don't invest in the media. Now, more than ever, it's time for brands to jump in. That's why our sponsor, Ally, is making big moves to put an end to the cycle and give women's sports the coverage they deserve. This year, Ally is continuing to invest in access for women's sports through sponsorships with ESPN, CBS, and women-owned outlets giving fans more opportunities to watch what they want, where they want. So tune in and be part of the change. To learn more, check out watchtochange.com because we're all better off with an ally. Gina, believe it or not, we've come to the end of this conversation. (laughs) I feel like we could keep talking forever. I just have a few more rapid fire questions for you to close this out. So number one, If you could wave a magic wand and create parity in one aspect of sports, what would it be? Time slots. I just, just give us an even playing field because I really think a lot depends on that all the way down to salaries and sponsorship dollars. Right now, we're just fighting a very unfair battle and not enough media companies are willing to even give them the chance at a prime time. And if you look at the numbers, every time they end up in great time slots, they shatter previous viewing records. So I'd love to major, make a wave a magic wand and see some awesome women's sports events on prime time on major networks on linear. 
You're the first person to give that answer on the show. So great answer. I love it. It's absolutely, absolutely true. I'd wave that magic wand. Gina, before we get to our last question, is there anything you want to plug or share with our listeners about what's on the horizon for Sports Innovation Lab or anything else? I um, mean, we got so much going on. Obviously, if you play an active role in the buying uh, media ecosystem, join the Women's Sports Club. You can check it out at sportsilab.com. We've got a page on our website all about it where you can apply for membership. Um, we'd lo- I'd love to get more companies involved in that. We're going to be launching an amazing data-driven soccer report uh, very soon, actually in May. Um, that's all about the explosive growth of soccer fandom and talks about women's soccer fandom or football, depending on where you're coming from. Um, and I think that's going to be eye opening and, um, our most innovative membership. So every other week we do these really awesome innovation briefings. They're 45 minutes long. I host a lot of them where we get super nerdy with the data behind trends we're seeing in sports and entertainment. Um, and we have awesome guest speakers. Yesterday, we had uh, someone from NASCAR, Carrie Gritton. We had Lynn St. James, the first Indy car racer female to win Rookie of the Year. Um, and they're just really, if you love data and you love to nerd out and you love to keep a finger on the pulse of what's happening, check out our most innovative membership. Um, yeah. I mean, that's just a few things. <laughs> that's great. And we'll link to all of those things in the show notes so everyone can check those out. Gina, last question. We always close with this question on the podcast. Can you summarize in a few sentences why you think it's good business to invest in women's sports? As any investor, you want to, you're not trying to buy a product. You're not trying to spend money and get something that's worth that amount. If you're a smart investor, you're trying to spend money and get more, get more value than what you paid for. And women's sports and is an investment. The dollar you spend today is going to be worth $10 in just a few years. So be a savvy investor and make some real money by investing in a high growth asset, which is women's sports. Great answer. And Gina has the data to back that up. So sure do. Gina, thank you so much for all you've done, all you're doing to grow women's sports. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's such an honor to know you. And I'm excited to keep doing this work alongside you guys. We're thrilled to have you in the network. We love what you do. We love the podcast and can't wait to, you know, build the future together. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to the Goals Podcast, the business case for women's sports presented by Ally, a change maker in women's sports steadfast in their commitment to the fight for media equity because we're all better off with an ally. To learn more about goals and our work to bring more brand investment into women's sports, be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, or visit our website at goals-sports.com. And remember, it's simply good business to be in the business of women's sports.